Assalamu alaikum and greetings of peace. This is Imran Malik, a digital editor at Renovatio, the Journal of Zaytuna College. I'm sitting here with Safir Ahmed, our editor. We recently did an interview with one of our writers, John Adali. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that interview with him. Yeah, maybe. Um, Assalamu alaikum. Um, we should uh, start with, uh, let me say a couple of things about Dr. Dali. I think Dr. John Adali is one of those um, uh, somewhat unique people um, in, the, in academia in uh, the sense that he's a Muslim, a really deep Muslim thinker, and we don't have a lot of those people sometimes, I think. He's a philosopher. He's very familiar with, um, you know, and well-grounded in metaphysics, which was uh, sort of the theme of our inaugural issue for Renovatio. Mm-hmm. Uh, he serves on our advisory board and has been a really helpful person on our, for us um, at this publication. And uh, I, I hope this is the, the reason we did this interview, I think, is because he's one of those people I think more and more people should hear from and mm-hmm. learn from. Um, and so we conducted this interview only because he has some fascinating things to say about religion, especially religion in academia. And uh, the interview was wide-ranging quite a bit. But he's also, um, just for people who are interested in this, he was one of the key editors of the study Quran, and that was the effort. He worked very closely with Dr. Sayyid Hussain Nasser uh, at George Washington University, who mm-hmm. led the effort um, to publish the study Quran. And uh, Dr. Dali is, is really um, uh, quite a gem, I think, for people um, concerned about um, Islam in mm-hmm. the modern world. Um, he has a lot of fascinating ideas and things that I hope people will pay pay attention to. Great, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about your your conversation with him? Yeah, you know, it's a very wide ranging conversation, and uh, uh, we didn't really plan it as such, other mm-hmm. than a very broad general topic. We wanted to talk about something he feels very passionately about, I think, which is religion and religion in academia, broadly speaking. Right. That's the scope of the uh, of the conversation was about that but you know we wandered off into some other things here and there um including how he learned about religion um and there's a little f- um uh, something that might make made me chuckle at the time when he mentioned it that he grew up thinking muslims were all white men in suits <laughs> Um, what does so, that mean? so wait yeah you you have to you have to uh, listen to his explanation when we get to it um but you know the conversation with the the I think that what's fascinating about the conversation to me was also something that fascinated me when he first proposed writing for us about this article because mm-hmm. he actually has a very original idea and view um, and a perspective on on what's happened to sort of um, the modern culture and what he calls how we and it's uh, what what are called ultimate questions. Hmm. Um, and his idea, the title of the, his uh, talk, which is "Wisdom in Pieces." is actually saying that wisdom, what was used to be known as traditional wisdom, was sort of, um, has been become fragmented now. And it's no longer an integral thing. It's now, we think of it as three dominant fields, science, philosophy, and art. Mm-hmm. And art includes culture as well. Um, so that's part of the conversation I thought was very, really um, enlightening to me, at least, yeah. 
Okay. Well, um, I think let's take a listen to the interview. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating interview. I hope people enjoy it. Um, and and we, as I said, we covered a lot of ground. And uh, it's also good for it's also good for people who anybody who's interested in learning more about their religion. He's got some good advice, especially towards the end of the interview. So let's begin with um, getting to know you a little bit for the for our audience who may not know you that well. <clears throat> you are teaching at. College of the Holy Cross, what exactly are the courses you're teaching? Uh, I teach the uh, Islamic studies courses, essentially. I'm, I'm, I've, I've taught a lot of Introduction to Islam. That's a popular course the students are always trying to get in, um, not because I'm a great teacher, but just because they're interested in the subject matter. I teach uh, a seminar on the Quran and uh, also a course on Islamic theology and philosophy. I'll be doing a course on religion and science. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are my subject areas. And these are students that are not necessarily Muslim, right? They're mostly not Muslim. They're mostly actually... Uh, Holy Cross still has a very substantial uh, population of Catholic students. Quite a lot of them come from uh, Catholic high schools. Mm-hmm. And it has a very strong Catholic Jesuit um, identity. So, I mean, I have usually one or two or three Muslims in class... Um, and but there's really just a handful at the college overall. I mean, it's uh, but yeah, it's mostly non-Muslims. And these are students taking these courses because they're interested in Islam, because they're required courses, or little of both. No, it's not. They're not required for the most part. Um, okay. Some some of the majors need it to fulfill their requirements. So most 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 are taking it either to fulfill a common area requirement, uh, but they're usually interested. That's usually taken as a kind of an elective. And uh, it's just, there's all sorts of reasons. I mean, a lot of the students are just curious. Um, They don't, in a lot of cases, they don't really know their own religion that well. And Islam also becomes a way for them to just get introduced to the topic of religion in general. Mm -hmm. That happens Mm -hmm. quite a lot. Um, So it's hard to know. I mean, I don't usually take a poll of their motivations, but my sense is that they're doing it just based on the current environment and the fact that right. they're, they themselves are usually attached to religion or are religious or have some kind of curiosity about it. A lot of them are led to it that way. And let me ask you this odd question. I mean, here we are at Zaytuna College, which is a Muslim liberal arts college. Um, would those courses that you're teaching, would you teach them in a different way if you were teaching at Zaytuna, do you think? Uh, yes, because um, my guess is that the students who are here have a pretty good grounding in some of the basics of Islam and have some idea about Islamic culture, the sources, the text, mm-hmm. and so forth and so on. And so my, 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 I would speculate that I wouldn't be starting from zero. Right. Um, the problem with teaching more broadly in the culture is that not only are you starting from zero, you're often starting from a deficit because there's a lot of, as everybody knows, there's a lot of misinformation. Mm-hmm. Distortions, they've, yeah. Yeah, they've yeah. absorbed things from the news or just from social media, just passively, not necessarily yeah. trying to seek yeah. out any so you got to correct that before you dive into... Yeah, that's yeah. right. you got to correct that. And very often you have to correct uh, false notions about religion in general. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and so I would, I would defin- I'm sure I would start uh, in a different way. Uh, but probably when it gets then to content, uh, sort of the meat of the course, right. I think that would probably be um, I want to get back to your learning about religion. Where, mm-hmm. where was your religious education? How did that happen? Well, it's very hodgepodge, uh, I have to say. Um, uh, I was raised in a uh, 
very traditional uh, house in terms of the nature of the Islam that we were taught. My grandfather uh, was a traditional alim in the Caucasus, mm. and he studied in Istanbul. This was before the fall of the Ottoman Empire. So you're a real Caucasian. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, the, he, so he studied there, and my father, who was, he was, quite, he was relatively old when he had me, Mm-hmm. And so, his his the Islam that he learned was essentially a a, a, a traditional Hanafi Maturidi um, spiritually focused Islam that had been untouched by any of these modern movements. And so I was that's that's what I was raised in, and you know mm-hmm. all of mm-hmm. the these other things which Muslims are kind of thinking about these days, the modernist movement, Salafism, and right. these these were all new to me when I went to college. I never really heard of them before because we were raised in in, in a different sort of mode and I and I got quite a I, I think at least in terms of my perspective on things and the way that I conceived of Islam my father was a very important influence mm-hmm. on me and he was quite learned himself um, then I went to college and I began to uh, you know after kind of a tumultuous freshman year where I, did you do your undergraduate Cornell Cornell yeah okay And I started to learn Arabic, mm-hmm. and then uh, Dr. Nasser, well, Dr. Nasser arrived first on campus. He was giving a set of guest lectures. Okay. The uh, A.D. White professorship at large, he was associated with, uh, he was affiliated with Cornell for seven years. And then he gave a lecture, a series of lectures, and I remember just being completely, uh, having my eyes opened, because up until that point, I had a very, and I'm looking back on it now, it's really funny, I had, I had such a provincial a notion of what Islam was. And even though I counted myself as someone who had like read a lot of books and I knew what it was. And so In what sense was it provincial? I was so provincial that, I mean, this is kind of funny. Uh, to me, Muslims were all white people who dressed in suits. <laughs> Okay. That's what that's what it was to me. I mean, that's usually not the case. I mean, no, it isn't. Know. Yeah, that's why I'm laughing. So when I, I can remember very clearly growing up where when I would kind of close my eyes and imagine and think about Muslims and like think about the past and think about the great figures of the past, they were all people who looked like, you know, basically Circassians. I mean, they were right. kind of all, you know, kind of fair-skinned, uh, right. you know, right. and, and also wearing Western clothing. Because, I mean, this is when I was very young. Yeah. My imagination was very restricted because, of course, you know, Turkey had been uh, where my parents uh, met and lived for a while. It was a very secular, it was an enforced secularism. Nobody wore traditional clothes. Right. And the only person that I ever saw wear anything resembling traditional clothing was the imam of the mosque who wore a, a Turkish jubba and a, and a cap. I want to ask you a question about this idea that uh, is there such a thing as learning about religion objectively, quote-unquote. I'm not sure. That's a very... <laughs> could you be more specific? Like? Well, I mean, sort of from the outside, if you will, you know, meaning from not within the tradition, from, from like looking at it in some sort of a sociological sense, or is there a way to learn? Is, is, that, is, there, um, is that what's happening in the universities, is my question, really? Yes, very much so. Um, I think the, the concept of religion in the universities... Mm. is a complete mess. In what the, way? The con- because the concept of religion is a mess. Mm. If you, if there's a book that I, everybody should read by Wilfred Cantwell Smith where he traces out the history of the concept of religion. And he shows how this term religion, you know, which began 
in its its older uses, would basically meant something like spiritual or devotional. So, in mm -hmm. other words, to have a religious impulse didn't mean to subscribe to some given sect or group or something like that. It meant something like uh, uh, the you know having a transcendent impulse or having some kind of devotional impulse or something. Like that. It was an mm -hmm. adjective referring mm -hmm. to a certain aspect of the soul. But then it began to acquire more and more re meanings uh, related to, you know, belonging to a certain sect or belonging to a certain right. group. Being religious then meant to be not uh, attached in a profound way to some ideal, but it meant to belong to some particular group. It meant to, it meant to subscribe to some particular kind of authority. Right. And anyway, it's a very it's a very worthwhile text for people to make their way through because you realize how all of these meanings just began to accumulate within the concept of religion, and have turned it into something where I mean Smith himself was saying I know it's it's really not realistic, but we should in a sense almost do away with this concept of religion altogether because it, it because it's not useful, it's too ambiguous, nobody knows exactly. And what so it what means. what remains then if you do that? I think. My my view is that many of the traditional distinctions that are made between, let's say, religion and philosophy, religion and art, uh, religion and science, are very heavily ideological divisions. Mm -hmm. So you know the the modern world has these you know sort of names of these broad disciplines. Like they have a thing; it's called science, which right. wasn't always called science. And it has philosophy, which is much more narrow than what philosophy used to be thought of. And it has this thing called art and culture, uh, which is a very new kind of entity. I mean, what we call art, the way we use the word art and the way we use culture, is kind of a re relatively novel kind of usage. Mm -hmm. And so modern life and modern intellectual life has come up with a way of dividing up um, these, these, this kind of realm of ultimate questions. And in a sense, and this is one this I wrote about, this is what some of my article is about right. for the Renovatio article for the, for the magazine, is that, you know, you have scientists are responsible for answering questions about what reality is like. You know, philosophers are there to essentially adjudicate about what's rational and to, you know, to talk about how we imagine and reason and critique and analyze mm -hmm. and create methods of, 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 uh, of, of looking at the world. And then art and culture basically are where we talk about values and have values and express our values and express our personality and so forth and so on. And each of these cases, each of these areas, they define themselves against this thing that's called religion. So it's, in a, in a sense, part of the definition of what it means to be scientific is the idea that it's not religion. Right, so they, they've completely divorced religion from these fields. I, I would mean, say it's not, it's not that they've divorced religion from it. I would put it more this way. Okay. I would say they've set up this thing called religion. Mm -hmm. or let, it's not that there's a, nobody's set it up. This thing called religion has become the other, has become the foil for religion. It's become the foil for philosophy. It's kind of become this other entity, even in regards to art and culture. I mean, as a Muslim, what's more intuitive and natural than saying that there's a difference between religion and culture? Right. I mean, it's the most, it's the most reflexive thing that anybody can do. Well, that's very interesting. Why? Why do we say that there's culture and then there's religion? Why do we say that there's philosophy, and but now there's theology on the other side of it? There's religion and then there's science. To me, there's a much deeper, there's a much deeper distinction that's, that's taking place here. And it has to do with the way in which modernity literally conceives of reality. It, it, it has to do with the original 
rebellion and the, the renunciation of the sacred as conceived of in the West by traditional Christianity and Judaism and in the Islamic world by, by Islam. You know? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so the ver there's, a very, there's a deeper structure. There's a deeper set of oppositions than religion versus science, than religion versus philosophy or religion, so forth and so on. And the idea that um, somehow religion is opposed to objectivity, right? Yeah. How do you study religion objectively? Right. How can you make that itself? The very question mm -hmm. is uh, is indicative. It's kind of it it it's 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 it sort of expresses the structure of how religion is conceived of in general. So I, right. there's a there's a kind of a worldview. There's an idea about what a human being is, what the world is, what it means to be good, what it means, what's the nature of purpose, and so forth, which prevails in the modern world. And it's a rejection of something that prevailed earlier. What was that? What do you mean? The sacred worldview of, of, the, oh, okay, of the great yeah, religions yeah. of the world. So, but the, the reason I asked you the question about uh, can it be studied objectively, because my assumption is that is what universities are trying to do. The point is, though, that if religion cannot be studied objectively in, this, in the sense that nothing can be studied objectively in the way that is, yeah. is claimed. Right. So because the presumption is that here's this thing, religion, <clears throat> uh, we have to be outside of it and we have to look at it objectively. Mm -hmm. But to be inside of it is to be subjective. And hence, what you say about it doesn't mean anything. And Muslim academics run into this all the time. Uh, you, oh, you're a religious Muslim. Oh, you wrote this, you wrote this book. Oh, it's a faith-based perspective. Right. Oh, or, or it's, you know, you're kind of mired in your own subjectivity and you're not really impartial. You know, we did the study Quran. We're hearing this all the time now in reviews. Mm -hmm. This is not an impartial academic work. This is not impartial. Well, please show me an impartial work of philosophy. Please show me mm -hmm. an impartial mm -hmm. work. And people will say, no, this is impartial. But the fact is, is there's, there's no such work that's impartial or objective in the way that people think that they can be objective. There's no view from nowhere. There's no, there's no stance outside of a certain set of moral commitments. Everyone brings to the table or begins from a set of moral commitments. Right. They believe that there's some kind of purpose that they're that their that their work is geared toward go to any college website mm -hmm. and almost all of them will have a mission statement yeah now what is the nature of that mission statement where does it come from where does that come from does it you know there's a kind of a there's a very deep logical problem here where people think that you can have a mode of analysis which is what they say like can you you can have a mode of analysis that's just objective you know that's right. objective but, but any mode of analysis is always driven by a certain moral commitment and assumptions and about assumptions reality, about the nature of reality right, right and what happens is you have people coming and studying islam who think that somehow they have this privileged uh, point of objectivity and dispassion when it comes to the to the subject matter or religion in general when mm -hmm. it comes to the subject matter and that they don't have moral assumptions and theoretical assumptions which they can't justify based on evidence, which they can't justify based on impartiality. They're just as committed, they have just as much subjectivity, you might say, as the people that they're studying. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not such a thing as reason and coherence and, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. evidence and, you know, guidelines and that you, it's not as though every claim is as good as every other claim. But, you know, the idea that, you know, to, to study religion objectively 
it's often presumed that anything inside of the realm of religion is necessarily subjective. It's sort of like art. There's, always, there's an assumption that right. when it comes to art and beauty and values, that it can only be subjective. Right. Objectivity is what the scientists do. So, but if you're talking about identifying what's beautiful or thinking about what's good and so forth and so on, these are all subjective matters. Right. You know, there's a right. kind of, they, have, they don't have a real ontological status in the same way that the things that yeah. scientists study have. Right. Um, they're not being done in a very dispassionate or clinical sort of way. They're, being, they're coming straight from within you somehow. That's a subjective definition, right? Yeah, and, it's all, and it doesn't really hold up to scrutiny. You know, these, mm -hmm. you know, everyone has an assumption about the way the world works. You know, so every, you know, if, if you believe in, if you have a certain view of cause and effect, right. if, if, if I throw this cup at your head and you duck, that's your metaphysics. You believe in cause and effect. You believe in the subsistence of objects. You believe in the constancy of the laws of nature over time and so forth and so on. You have a certain right. set of theoretical assumptions. You know, so people talk about evidence, for example. Well, what counts as evidence? If your, your theory about what counts as evidence, your assumptions about what counts as evidence cannot come from the evidence. It's an assumption that you bring to the evidence. It's a belief that you bring to the evidence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, your, you know, the fact that you're deciding to study religion in a certain way, the fact that you want to analyze it impartially and objectively and so forth and so on, what brings a person to that, to that enterprise? What, what makes them choose that course of study? What makes them choose that object of study as opposed to something else? There's a kind of a moral or a purposeful, there's a meaning to it, which cannot be derived from the thing that they're studying or the way that they're studying it. There's, a, there's an initial moral commitment that brings them and causes them to do that. And that's not something that can be demonstrated or proven either. Right. There's the, real, the real relationship between subjectivity and objectivity is that subjectivity is a condition for objectivity. Who or what decides that you're going to study this as opposed to that? Someone comes and they say they want to study religion. Mm -hmm. Instead of studying, um, uh, you know, the nature of, uh, uh, you know, uh, instead of studying football or sitting around right. watching video games, there's a moral impulse. There's something that tells them that this is a worthwhile thing to do. And every mission statement in, in a university is basically trying to justify what makes it worthwhile for them to pursue the things that they're trying to pursue. Right. That's a moral commitment. That's a faith commitment. Right. That's having faith in a certain um, pursuit. And that has a lot of overlap with religion. I mean, when you really look at these differences, they don't really hold up. The, the, sort of the, these distinctions that are made between religion, science, and religion, philosophy, and so forth. Yeah, I mean, I, mean I, I, I love where we're going with this in a way, but I want to get back to one other thing, which is you s define this, this sort of, and you touch upon this in your article itself, this idea that, you know, what you, you refer to something called traditional wisdom, mm -hmm. which used to be the way things were before this separation sort of happened. Mm -hmm. The separation between science and philosophy and art and culture and all, you know, they, they, they got separated. So let's go back for a minute and, and talk to me about what was traditional wisdom. I mean, are we talking about an age of sort of polymaths in, in, in the sense of people who studied different things and who were, they, they understood um, all of these things as being related to each other, as being um, interwoven in many ways that you couldn't separate them? I think traditional wisdom was tied to the sacred. Mm -hmm. and it was tied to a living reality in a way that has now been forgotten. I think that what, when I say traditional wisdom, for example, in the Islamic case, yeah. uh, you had, you had uh, for example, the Sufis, you had the, the, the hukama, the philosophers, 
you have the theologians um, who, unlike the case in the modern world, did not separate their understanding of what is real, what is rational, mm -hmm. what is good into these separate compartments. And they had a, they had a kind of a living conscious connection with the truth, with the nature of reality that was tied to the sacred. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Every, I mean, Islam, of course, and all the and, and the previous religions, they were tied to a, and and they were dependent upon the living, the the living sacred reality. Upon the upon the truth, they were they were they were connected with uh, the good uh, in in a way that was not rationalistic. Or not? I mean, I'm I'm sort of losing. I'm sort of I'm at a, I'm struggling to come kind of come up with the words for this. But tra traditional wisdom was not merely a content. It wasn't merely a kind of a mode of being. It was human beings themselves had a different set of priorities. They they right. in their own hearts and in their own souls. This was the core of what it meant to be traditionally wise. I don't think, and this is why sometimes these matters are a little bit difficult to talk about. It, it's it's very hard to argue that. Um, we can get back to something of value in the traditional world simply by adopting certain kinds of ideas as opposed to other ideas or that mm -hmm. we can simply mm -hmm. read these texts instead of these other texts because at the root of all this, at the root of all this, at the bottom or at the, at the center of all these activities are human beings mm -hmm. and it's the human beings that have to be transformed. And traditional wisdom was perhaps the one characteristic that was different about it mm -hmm. than what we have in modern life is that in, in modern life, there's no demand that people even be wise in the first place. Like wisdom has now become passe. We don't even right. understand what That's that means. That's not the goal. That's not the goal. Right. But it, traditional wisdom always had the idea that the ultimate goal, however you wanted to conceive of it, was the transformation of human beings themselves, was the growth and the maturation of the soul. There was a conception of a human being mm -hmm. that said, you're in, you're in this state and you have to get to this state. How do you get from this state to this state? How do you go from being far from God to becoming close to God? How do you go from being a vicious person to becoming a virtuous person? How do you go from being cruel to becoming compassionate? How do you go from being unconscious, walking around as if sleepwalking, to being conscious and to be present? And th the traditional wisdom was developed in order to be able to make those things real, in order to be able to actualize those things. And it was whole. Mm -hmm. And the, mm -hmm. the dimension of understanding how the world worked and the dimension of understanding what it meant to think rationally and the dimension of thinking about what it meant to do the good and to act as you ought to act and to craft and, and appreciate beauty in one's life, these were all part of a single reality. They were all part of a single life. And that life has completely been blown apart and fragmented in the modern world. And therefore, we're studying things completely in silos, so to speak, in separation. And, that, and, that, and part of your point seems to me is one is about the goal. What is the goal of, of learning in general? And secondly, what are we learning? And how are we learning it? Meaning in, and so that's why I want to get back to the universities. Yeah. Because they're teaching these things in very separate ways, right? I yeah. Mean, there's no, I mean, if you if you major in something, that's all you do and that's all you study, right? So my question, what, I want to come back to this idea of, of um, the study of whether it's religion or philosophy or science in, in the university context because 
part of my assumption here, um, and, and I'll try and articulate this as best as I can, but part of my assumption here is that universities and what's happening in universities is actually influencing the rest of society. Absolutely. Yeah. And so this idea of, of what you're talking about, this fragmentation, is actually sort of codified at the universities. Yeah. Right? I mean, you're seeing that. You are part of, 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 the, of some of these uh, places. You're familiar with that. And what's the impact in terms of religion, for instance, or any other areas? What's the impact on, on, on the broader society? We see in the dominant culture that religion has sort of become marginalized. You used the word, it's been colonized. Or I think, was it you? I forget, somebody recently did. But anyway, mm -hmm. that it was colonized. It's become colonized in many ways, religion has. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, keep it at home or keep it separate. It has nothing to do with all the, you know, modern life in general and science and technology and everything mm -hmm. else. Did that come from the universities? Or is the, are the universities simply a reflection of what's already happening out here? Yeah, that's hard to know because, I mean, you know, human, you know, human societies are, it's very complex. It's not just the universities, it's also centers of power, mm -hmm. you know, the, mm -hmm. you know, wealthy benefactors, you know, political right, power. Right, right. You know the society at large, people in the arts, and in, and in you know and in uh, and in what we would broadly right. call culture, influencing things. So it's very complex, but I think there's a very important way in which the intellectuals lead the way. I mean, intellectuals tend to really set the tone, and you know, look at the scientific revolution. I mean, this which you know people joke, mm -hmm. you know, it's neither scientific nor a revolution, but you know, the period of time where you had the overturning of the old Christian sort of Aristotelian way of looking at the cosmos and then the introduction, the introduction of the mechanical philosophy um, and the, 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 the new science uh, of the day. You, I mean, this, this was really just a handful of people. I mean, it was a very small group of intellectuals uh, who we, you know, call philosophers or scientists mm -hmm. who were responsible for a huge transformation in the way that Europe thought about itself and thought about the world and thought about the nature of the good and thought about the nature of reality and so forth and so on. So, I mean, I think a lot of it is coming out of the universities. I mean, I think a lot mm -hmm. of these ideas come from there. I think uh, if you look at a lot of the political movements, they're coming out of academia. I mean, they're, they're, they're beginning from somewhere. If, if you go and you see a, someone giving a fire, fiery political speech, They've probably studied with someone who studied with someone who read the right. book, who kind of and kind of goes back to some of these figures. Uh, I mean, a lot of a lot of modern, you know, let's say thought on the left. I mean, you can follow the train back. It goes back to Foucault, or it goes back to Heidegger, or it right. goes back to Nietzsche, and you know, which were all being studied at the universities, right? Right. So the, these are all really important. But I have to say, I mean, it, it, it's a little bit, it, it makes me seem a little bit um, sort of odd and contrarian. But I really believe that, you know, I mean, things are now the way they are. I mean, you can't mm -hmm. change history. But I find it very unlikely. I, I, I find it, it it's, it's becoming increasingly hard, I think, for human beings to be able to, of an intellectual caliber, people who are trying to think about things intellectually, to simply rely on these categories of religion and then philosophy and science and art in the way that they've been conceived of, of until this point. Because these words, which if they ever had a kind of a precise meaning, if they ever mm -hmm. had a kind mm -hmm. of a really clear delineation, they just don't have them anymore. You know, they right. mean something different, you know, depending on who's talking and what they're saying. And so 
you know, when I when I see young people and they they're talk, they want to understand the relationship of let's say religion and and I mean these are these are names of communities of people who have their own kinds of belief. I really believe that the way forward for people to become sane about these issues, for them to be able to navigate, right. you know, what it means to get an education in a university or something, they have to become, for lack of a better term, philosophically or intellectually nimble at a very deep level mm -hmm. so that they don't get buffeted about by these kind of disciplinary arguments. Like, you know, you have people who say, well, this is the discipline of philosophy, this is the discipline of science, this is the discipline of the study of religion. And for various economic, institutional kind of uh, reasons of hubris and mutual jealousy, you have these, uh, you have them, you have different groups of people dividing up into these different categories. Right. And if we, if, if we, and I'm speaking just personally here, if a human being is not capable of being able to see through this and to see the more ultimate questions at the bottom of it, in other words, people are making a claim to what the nature of reality is. People are making a claim about the nature of what is possible and how the, how the world works. People are making basic moral commitments, and I want to be able to understand what they're trying to say in terms of those more ultimate questions. That's the only way that you're going to be able to cut through and make any kind of sense out of the world. But what's happening now is that people are just basically leveraging their understanding of this vague notion of religion versus this vague notion of, let's say, philosophy versus a vague mm -hmm. notion of mm -hmm. philosophy, uh, science. And um, it's, 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 it's very hard to, you know, have your feet, you might say, kind of like you're treading water and it's kind of hard to get your feet to actually touch the bottom. And to be able to stand on anything certain. And the reason for that, part of, I mean, part of the reason for that, as you explain um, in the article you wrote, um, which is titled Wisdom in Pieces, is there's no definitions for these things. And, and to begin with, philosophy is what the philosophers say it is, mm -hmm. and science is what the scientists say it is. Yeah. And even they're hard-pressed to define mm -hmm. what, what that means. What, yeah, what that I mean, one is, of the most right? amazing things about modern life is that... You know, the philo philosophy has a kind of a, a history. It has a prestige. I mean, people understand what it, people understand that there's such a thing as philosophy. You're raised on it. It's you. You get it with your mother's milk. Mm -hmm. I mean, you hear about Plato and Aristotle and these great figures, and that there's this thing called philosophy, where you go and it's somehow you understand that it's important, and you're going to explore life's questions, and you have vague notions of meaning, and so. But then when you actually go and you talk to the philosophers, and you actually read about them, and you actually, and you try and find out, well, what do you mean? What do you mean to say, what is philosophy? There's absolutely no agreement or consensus on the question at all. Mm. Nobody knows what it is. Right. Every right. important philosopher disagrees with every other important philosopher about what the boundaries of philosophy are. There's a kind of a vague idea that, well, it has to do with critique, it has to do with analysis, it has to do with the creation of concepts, and so forth and so on. But you have a group of people in society who mm -hmm. occupy philosophy departments, who are at this, you might say, at the pinnacle of intellectual life in many respects for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And there's no coherence and there's no kind of consensus about when, what any of that means. I mean, what does it mean for people? You know, what does it mean for the rest of society that those people who should be in the best position to interpret what the nature of philosophy is, what the nature of truth and what the nature of meaning and so forth is, mm -hmm. have no ability to even define what it is that they do. Right. You know, the claim is that, you know, philosophy is critique and analysis and so forth. Well... You know, there's methodologies, though. They're, I mean, they claim to have methodologies. Science does, philosophy does, right? 
Yeah, but the problem is, in most cases, that basically works. They kind of muddle along, mm -hmm. but the word philosophical is deployed in a certain way. And then when you actually want to understand, well, what do you mean by philosophical? It's supposed to be the claim is that philosophy is, uh, let's say, the dispassionate, impartial approach. Mm -hmm. We don't we don't seek to answer questions of truth. We don't try to Just say to what reality it. is. Yeah, we we try to reframe the questions. You know, we don't try mm -hmm. and tell you what's good and what's bad, but rather we try to show the way in which you can approach questions of what's of what's good and bad. The problem is that that's never the case. Every philosopher assumes in the nature of what reality is. Every philosopher has to has to begin from some kind of moral commitment as, a, as regarding what they think is good and bad. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Nobody, no, no. I mean, you can imagine it in your mind. You can have a kind of a figure in your mind of this kind of pure objectivity or this kind of pure pursuit of critique. But it's not what actually happens in real life. And when you actually try to sort of define and draw a line and say this is what philosophy is and this is what it isn't, the only consistent answer that you can get is that it's whatever the people in the philosophy departments say it is. Right. And that's not a that's not what the definition of philosophy says. That's an institutional definition. That just means that we as a society have decided that we're going to trust these guys, mostly guys, <laughs> and say that whatever they say, we're going to say that counts as philosophy. But that's not the definition of philosophy. Philosophy is not about trusting a particular group of people to tell you certain things. Right. Philosophy is supposed to be about reasoning out and deciding and thinking for yourself and so forth and so on. But it turns out to be completely dependent upon trust. Mm -hmm. It turns out to be completely dependent upon the fact that you rely on this group of people to tell you what the truth is about so forth and so on. You have to trust them first, and then you go and you study with them, right. and then you kind of figure it out. Right. I mean, think about analytic philosophy. You can't really begin to understand that area of like, you really have to spend years and years getting their terminology and kind of getting things. Okay, well, why, why am I supposed to do that in the first place? That's a moral decision. In other words, I'm seeing something, and I'm going to commit now eight, nine, ten years of my life to, to studying this. Studying that, yeah. And then on the other end of it, then I'll become able to properly practice it. Well, how did I come there in the first place? That's a relationship of faith. You have faith in something. Right. You have trust in something. Now, you might say, well, okay, that's fine. That's the way it should work, you might say. Well, fine, but then don't try to, don't take out a club and beat religious people over the head for having trust in something and having faith in something. Because you have trust yourself. Because, yes, your entire enterprise is based on trust. Yeah. And it's the yeah. same thing for science. The scientific enterprise, despite the fact that there are, of course, many, I mean, it's not as though it's completely based. That's not the point I'm trying to make. It's not based on trust completely. But without trust, without faith, without a moral judgment that this is good and that this is bad, these things don't even exist. Right. You can't even get anywhere with them. And that's good. That's a good thing. It's supposed to be that way. That's what human beings are. We can never know everything for ourselves. We can never think about every problem for ourselves. We can never understand all the nature of all things. We have to do it together. We have to be able to rely on other people. We have to be able to make judgments and saying, this person knows what he's talking about. This person doesn't know what he's talking about based upon certain criteria. But it's a kind of a, it's a collective enterprise. There's a conceit in modern life, mm -hmm. that somehow religious people are these kind of dogmatic, overly trusting, faith-based people, whereas we are evidence-based, we believe in thinking it through and so forth and so on. I don't believe that dichotomy holds up to any scrutiny whatsoever. There are people in, in philosophy who are as fanatic 
as the most fanatical Wahhabi is when it comes mm -hmm. to their particular mm -hmm. doctrines. I mean, just look at this recent book by Daniel Dennett. I mean, this guy has now for 50 years been insisting, despite the fact that it's the most insane idea possible, that you can begin from a bunch of molecules kind of banging together and that these molecules bang together once they do it sufficiently in some kind of complexity that you can get consciousness. Right. <clears throat> And moreover, just making kind of blanket assertions, well, yes, I believe that we are really nothing more than damp robots, but that doesn't at all contradict the fact that I have a sense of the sacred. Well, you, I mean, you can say the words. Yeah. I mean, you can say those words out loud, like, just as I can say, well, look, I may be having a relationship with another woman, but that doesn't mean that I'm not faithful to my wife. I mean, I can, you, can, you can be both, you know? Right. Yes, I'm having an affair, but I'm still not committing adultery. I mean, you can say the words, you know, you right, can say them, right. but it doesn't mean that it makes any kind of sense. So you have people who are in, the, in, in these areas who are kind of fanatical and completely irrational, and they believe what they believe with a kind of a ferocity. And then they're looking down on religious people for being dogmatic. That's your yeah. point. Yeah. I mean, who could be more, who could be more rational and open-minded and willing to entertain arguments than some of these figures from the tradition, like Fakhreddin Razi mm -hmm. and, you know, and Imam Ghazali and others. I mean, when you read their works, it's characterized by an incredible openness to being able to look at different views, look at things different, and, and grasping the fact and really understanding the psychology of people. Meaning, you know, some people have faith because they're just weak-minded or they're just, it's just pure taqlid, it's pure imitation, mm -hmm. um, and, <clears throat> and, and so forth. I mean, it's not as though, uh, you know, the, 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 the lack of objectivity that modern thought kind of places on religion was somehow discovered by them. Right. And these right. dangers, like right. the pitfalls of people being religious and believing the wrong things because of those impulses, were somehow discovered by the modern uh, thinkers, as if religious people themselves didn't take these things on board, they considered them, and yet they made a judgment that the sacred is real, that God is real, and so forth and so on. So anyway, you don't see that anymore. I mean, that, what you were saying, those examples of the way they approached religion it's much more rare unfortunately yeah. Yeah. yeah i mean it's really inspiring when you go back into the tradition when you look when you're reading through you know let's say the traditional tafsirs and when you're looking at mm -hmm. traditional books of theology like if you look at taftazani and eg and i mean you could just pick so many names at random really mm -hmm. and when you look at the, what kind of culture there must have been yeah I mean, what what was what was life like that you that know produced those kinds of people? Yeah, and, and, and the thinking, fact yeah. and they, the fact that they had an audience. They knew that if they wrote these things, that there were people out there who were going to read it, and understand it, and be able to, right. you know, not freak out. Not you know, and mm -hmm. now what do we have today? We have a bunch of people who are you know screaming at people saying kitab sunnah, kitab sunnah, kitab sunnah, as if people can live on kitab sunnah. Right. I mean, the places that are doing that are producing a lot of atheists. They're not producing a lot of. You know, mm -hmm, find Muslim. Mm -hmm, that's that, that's yeah. a, that's that's a good yeah. way to get atheism. No, but the, the the point is, is that you know, it's you know, when when modern people think that Muslims or I should say religious people are irrational or not capable of being objective, it's not without evidence. I mean, they do have some evidence for that, but it, I mean, the causes for that are quite complex. Right, right. Before we um, end this, I want to ask you one other quick question, um, and this may seem like an odd one, but where we started um, this conversation, and which is. Um, you were talking about how you, your education of religion worked yeah. and how that happened with your family, and then eventually mm -hmm. you explored these things. Um, for somebody who wants to learn more about their religion, whether they're Muslim or any other faith for that matter, um, 
what advice do you have, particularly in the context of universities and, and studying religion? In universities? Well, no, just in general. I mean, if, if somebody is, uh, I want to learn about religion, I want to learn more about my religion, where do I go? What's the best way for me to do that? You think Muslims in particular? Or, yeah. yeah, you can talk about Muslims, but, but I mean, I, I would think it would apply to other, other um, faiths as well. But go ahead, let's talk about Muslims. Um, I think the first thing that a person needs to do is to have the right intention. Mm-hmm. Uh, the intention has to be sincere. The intention has to be that you're doing this for the sake of God, for the sake of the truth, and not for some other motive that you want to be more clever than your friends or that you want to one-up somebody or, or right. something like that. I mean, there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of pitfalls. I mean, this is one of the things that Imam Ghazali talked about a lot. I mean, he really was very, very unhappy with the state of the scholars of his day mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because they pursued scholarship for all kinds of reasons. They wanted prestige and they wanted to be known for their learning and, and, and so forth. And so right. I think it's very important that if somebody wants to learn more about their faith, that they pray to God to give them guidance, that they are sincere, mm-hmm. that they make sure that their heart is right. And I think that's something that you can do without opening a book. Right. You know, you don't have right. to necessarily open a book. Um, then I think, uh, you know, I think different people have different kinds of books and different kind of avenues that they can pursue. Mm-hmm. I think, I think uh, you, know, tr- you know, traveling is not for everybody, but for those people who can travel and kind of go someplace. Mm-hmm and study um, as Sheikh Hamza did and like other people do. I right. mean, it's something I do. I think that's not a bad option. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, I mean, it's, I'm sort of in the position now of, of, you know, recommending books or recommending institutions, which is a hard thing to do in general because different people have different needs. You know, some people really need to know that their religion has an intellectual and metaphysical kind of basis to it. And that's really going to help them um, find what they're looking for. That what they really want to know is that there have been people in their faith who have explored these questions in a kind of a sophisticated way, and that's really going to be very nourishing for them. Other people, that doesn't mean anything to them at all. They can't. They don't understand. They couldn't read. They couldn't follow a proof. They couldn't mm-hmm. follow anything mm-hmm. like that for, for the life of you know. That's just not the way their mind. Then there are some people whose heart and whose what they're really looking for perhaps is the beauty of the religion so right. if you if, for example if you expose them to tra- traditional architecture or, or 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 you know to that mode of things or you have them read the poetry of rumi or you mm-hmm. have when, when they see that there's something like that that becomes their entryway to learning something mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and similarly other people want to know that there's an ethics you know that's their entry point they really want right. to be able to understand how to situate their ethical life because not not everyone when they say i want to learn more about my religion I mean, people mean many different things by that. Sure. You know, for some people, that means they want to learn about law, Islamic law. They're really right. interested. Right. Other people have no interest in that whatsoever. You know, when some people say, I want to learn more about my religion, they often mean that they want to learn more about the Prophet Muhammad, alayhi salatu mm-hmm. You know, they want to read the seerah. They want to really understand what is the example that we're looking at. For other people, it means I really want to read the Quran. And so it's very hard to give a kind of a blanket, you might say, uh, but a, a piece of advice. The one true. Yeah. yeah. I would say this. I think if 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 I, I would say the one thing is that 
a person should take the attitude that they are first going to uh, take care of their own self mm-hmm. and and not necessarily see the acquisition of knowledge or the acquisition of understanding in light of belonging to a particular group or of satisfying the demands of a certain kind of outside of authority. Now, that's a very dangerous thing to do, to say from a certain point of view, because it, it opens up, it kind of it makes a little bit of a free-for-all. But I think I've seen so many young kids and I've seen so many people who they get harmed mm-hmm. because they're trying to fit into the version of a religion that someone else is handing right, to them. Right. And it, it hurts them. I mean, they get alienated, they get heartbroken, they kind of don't understand what's going on. And so I think one of the things that anybody should do is to always maintain an attitude that uh, if I if I embark on a course of study, if I take a class in a university, or if I read a book, or if I go study with a scholar, um, I may have to I have to maintain a, a certain kind of independence, and I have to maintain a certain uh, uh, willingness to follow my own heart and to follow my own conscience. In a traditional Islamic society, you didn't have to worry about this so much because everything was geared towards nourishing you there was, mm-hmm. it was a kind of a holistic you could have a lot more trust in the figures around you you could really just sort of be a child as it were and kind of go sit at the feet of of your culture and really get a lot of nourishment but think about what modern life is like now right everything is so everything is so chaotic you know you go on the internet you read one thing and then there's a link and it brings you to something else that will completely scramble your brain right religiously speaking that's why i'm asking why i mean i think my my intention asking the question about advice to people who are interested and let's take for instance the 1400 years of scholarship mm-hmm. that you have in the islamic tradition and the people that you studied you were talking about al-ghazali or fakhuddin or razi mm-hmm. people like that to understand the islamic tradition deeply if somebody you know um is the university the place to go to do that i mean is a secular university or any an university to go unfortunately usually not i have to be honest mm-hmm. unfortunately usually not because uh because of there's deep problems um in in the way that islam generally speaking is taught and the moral you might say purpose the kind of the vision the mission mm-hmm. within which it's taught I mean, you don't. Uh, the religion classes are taught within the context of a certain kind of mission statement about teaching about the world. Right. For example, why do why does someone want to learn more about their religion so that they can live it? That's what people study right. their faith for. They don't study their faith as a merely intellectual exercise. Right. They're doing it because they want to incorporate it into themselves. They want it to become part of who they are. Right. They want to be transformed by it. They want to walk in, be changed and then walk out as a different person in the experience. Right. In the study of religion in the university, this is a very tr- problematic way of looking at things. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, you, you, to, to sort of say, I'm going to go into a class on Islam and come out a better Muslim, or I'm going to go into a class on Catholicism, come out a better Catholic, is a, doesn't quite fit into the into the into the overall model of the modern university unfortunately now having said that there's also many cases in which this is muslims first exposure to anything kind of real and non-provincial mm-hmm. about their religion and they kind of have a lot of benefit from it especially if you get a good professor i mean people who go and they get to study with professor nasser for example many of them are transformed by it right. it's really important for them and but he has a stature where he's able to teach that class any way that he wants you know, but generally speaking, it's, you know. But if I take a, cl- 
go to university and mm -hmm. go through an Islamic studies yeah. program, you're saying you're not really going to, that's not going to particularly be helpful in, in make, making you a better person it, religiously. It might or it might not. It okay. really depends. It depends on the. It on really depends. I'll give you an example. I mean, look, for generations, mm -hmm. and it's still the case, you go as a Muslim into a, uh, into a, um, a course, let's say, on Islamic law or on the hadith. Mm -hmm. And your professors that you trust and you look up to tell you, oh, well, the hadith are just, you know, you can ignore these. These are just invented by right. a later generations, right. uh, you know, kind of read back and creating isnads and so forth and so on. They just kind of don't take it seriously. Mm -hmm. Now, for the professors teaching that course, this is not a moral issue for them. They're just yeah. being historical, you know, right. and maybe you might make your name as a scholar uh, doing this and so forth and so on. But for your students, this is a really moral question because these people are coming in, they have faith, they have, they have their entire worldview mm -hmm. is based upon something which, of which the hadith are, are a very important part. And you're just kind of uh, very... Dismissing them. You yeah. just dismiss it. Right. And many people have had their faith extremely damaged right. because they think that the sources of their religion are kind of questionable. Right. You know, whether it comes like the Wandsboro thesis of the Quran, and the crazy idea that the Quran was written 200 years later by a Mesopotamian clerical elite, or, or that like all of these isnads were read back and so forth and so on. And now generations of, of Muslim students who went to get their PhD, who took undergraduate courses, took these courses and were harmed by it. And now the Western Academy has come along and said, oh, well... Maybe we were too extreme about that, you know. Now that you know people like Harold Matsky and others have come along and said, maybe you need to take these hadith more seriously mm -hmm. because we didn't really understand the nature of the corroboration that they were actually using at the time and so forth. Okay, well, what about the what about those generations of students who were affected by this? Right. Is there no moral accounting to be had? I mean, that that I think is a real question. I mean, if you go and you study, um, you, you know, you study the Holocaust, for example, or you study. Uh, now these days, if you study uh, American slavery, the American Civil War, mm -hmm. people take seriously the moral dimensions of what's being taught. I mean, sometimes too much with trigger warnings and safe right, spaces right, right. and so forth and so on. But there's an understanding that when you teach something, that there's a moral, moral and there's a, it, yeah. there's a sacred dimension to it right. that has you have to take into account. You have to take seriously that you're African-American student. You can't just talk about slavery any old way that you want. You have to take it seriously. You can't just talk about the Holocaust any way that you want. You have to take seriously that you might have a Jewish student right. and others who, for whom this is... That doesn't mean that you have to lie or not tell the truth or not be honest about it. But one has to have a certain degree of care. One has to have a kind of... Have to, you have to take that on board. And unfortunately, because of the position of Muslims in society and of religious people in general in society and the way that they wield power in the university, these issues are often dealt with in an extremely careless and dismissive and destructive way. They're not seen as important things to ponder, actually, right? Right. I mean, yeah. in, in many cases, it's just considered, it's just treated like a joke. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this has a very, and, and you know, uh, it's, you know it's, a, it's a hard thing because you, you don't want to tell people to just isolate themselves when it comes to matters of faith and just don't pay attention to anything else that anyone is saying. Because I think Muslims have a lot to learn about the world and the way and, and thinking about religion. And I think religious people have a lot to learn by listening to people who are not religious. Right. You know, there's a lot of fair-minded people out there who are not members of any faith because of their own background. Uh, and, and they have good questions. 
They have very good insights into things. They're very sincere. And they might be morally up, upright Yeah, people. they're morally upright, and, right. and they have interesting ideas, mm -hmm. and they might say mm -hmm. something that will actually help you and shed light on your own life. You know, it's not as though the only thing valuable that you can learn is from someone of your own religion. Right. But what happens in the university setting in some cases is that somebody goes in, they're taught that, you know, oh, the hadith were just, just to use that example right. again, the hadith are meaningless and kind of, and then there's no, that's all they're given. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they have nothing else, and then their their parents trusted the university to kind of teach them and right, to give them some right. kind of objectivity. They're taught this, and then that they're carrying that for the rest of their lives. I mean, what do you do with that? I mean, it's it's hard to have a kind of a good, clear answer for that. Right. Um, you know, one, one has to be aware of it. Uh, one has to, in a sense, be on guard for it. I, I wish I had a, a a simple rule for dealing with these things. You know, but you, you I don't want to condemn modern academia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At all, but it has its limits. Is what but it has saying. its limits, and yeah. it has its destructive. destructive I mean, look, yeah. I, I think yeah. we should be self-critical. Right. I mean, look at right. the look at traditional religion. Look at the state of traditional Islamic education. And in a lot of cases, it's really abysmal. I I can't, in good conscience, in many cases, tell mm -hmm. some intelligent young person to go and study, you know, traditional law or something with somebody when I know that they're gonna like think that oh, my God, this is some kind of crazy backwards type of thing. I mean, not everyone who teaches traditional Islam is doing it in a good way, right. you know? I mean, there are, mashallah, there are great teachers out there. There are kind of really people who, re you know, but not everyone is Abdullah bin Bayah. Right. You know, there are a lot of people where you're better off just not doing it and just reading books on your own because you might actually be harmed by that. How many people are harmed by going to the mosque, for example? Yeah. You know, and so forth. And, and the same way that you can be harmed by going to the university and studying. So I I wish I had a there's good, no clear answer to it, but you, other than to have your intentions good and your, and your intentions should be books. good. Yeah, you should you should do. I mean, people should read widely. Mm -hmm. They should they mm -hmm. should try to be honest with themselves. They should try to um, be humble. Mm -hmm. um, they should always take the attitude that I have something to learn from other people. You know, they shouldn't try to ingratiate themselves into this that this and that other group. Right. Um, but you know, otherwise it's, I mean, I could give a list and there are good lists of books that people can read, which right. can, I mean, I, there's like, you know, Abdul Hakim Murad has a book list. Uh, my friend Joseph Lombard put together a really good book list, uh, and there's other things, but that's hard to do because nobody's going to sit and read 40 books. Right. You have to be able to, uh, each individual person has to know what they're looking for and try to find it. And to be honest, I mean, I hate to sound, I don't want to be too dismissive about this, but these things are in God's hands. That's why I opened up by saying one has to be sincere. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think if a person is sincere, they will get help. You know, they will eventually right. they will right. find that help. They have to have the right intention. Um, and um, on that note, I mean, I, I, I want to. <laughs> I mean, I think that Zaytuna College, for instance, what it's trying to do, yeah. it's ambition. It's a new college. It's been around for seven years now, but they are trying to teach traditional sort of Islam. Yeah. Um, and I wonder how unique that is in in the landscape of uh, colleges and universities. The the approach to teaching, what we're teaching here. I think in some cases, obviously, it, it is unique because it's the only Muslim college. It's the only Muslim college <laughs> right. doing it. I mean, there are other places. You know, some of these Catholic institutions and other places right. that do the great are books. Yeah, you know, and they and they 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 also they try to take an approach which is similar to you know Sheikh Hamza's, which is to kind of read the great texts, right. focus on logic, focus mm -hmm. on grammar, mm -hmm. uh, you know, focus on really trying to read high quality things, and uh, you know, there's an ideology, there's a kind of uh, I mean, 
Yes, I mean, uh, we were speaking yesterday, and I used the word ideology, and he wasn't very happy with that. I was using it in a more neutral way. <laughs> right. There's a kind of an there's an idea that drives um, people to kind of there's a sort of an overriding mission, which is not reducible to the technique that's used to teach, and that's something that's a little bit more ineffable and kind of ethereal, mm -hmm. which is to say that an institution like Zaytuna or even, let's say, an institution like Harvard and mm -hmm. all of the varieties in between, they crystallize around a, a, an idea, a collected idea of all the people who are involved in it about what is worthwhile for us to pursue. Right. And that underlying, you might say, encompassing notion that all of the people involved in an institution have, what is worthwhile to pursue, that is extremely important for then determining how will we pursue it and about what will we be, you know, right. what will we, what right. will we then be doing? Uh, so for some people, what is worthwhile to pursue doesn't include Islam and it doesn't include religion. So if you go to Harvard, there's no department of religion, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, and then you have people there who objected to the idea that there should be a department of, there's a center for the study of religion. There's a divinity school, right. but within the, you know, within the arts and sciences, you don't have a department that is the study of religion. You know, many newspapers for a long time, they didn't, have really, let's say, religion reporters or a section where they would talk about religion, which if you think about the importance of religion in America is kind of crazy. Right. You, know, you have a business section, but you don't have a religion section. Right. They you used know. to. I mean, there were religion reporters. That, that's less yeah. and less true yeah. anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it's getting, yeah. it, in, some, in some sense, it's getting better. Right. But I think what's unique or, let's say, special about Zaytuna and other places like that isn't so much that, oh, look, we found a program or we found a right. technique or something like that. It really does come from a certain uh, commitment and a certain faith and a certain trust that there are certain things which are worthwhile to pursue. Right. And we're going to structure our enterprise around those around things that are worthwhile to pursue. Modern academia is very much structured around the idea that there are things which are worthwhile to pursue. Science is the same thing. There are certain things which are worthwhile to pursue, mm -hmm. others which are not. Philosophy is the same thing. In art, it's the same thing. There are certain things that we ought to be doing. And I think that is what is is uh, something that is kind of hard to, uh, you might say, define or duplicate. Right. I mean, that's that's a very precious thing. It's hard to... It's hard to um, Maybe I'm drifting from the original question. No, I think here. it's yeah. My, I, I think I, I don't think you're drifting so much. I, I think the question really, what we're trying to get at, um, is teaching religion or teaching um, uh, somebody who wants to learn religion and goes to, to study. Um, uh, my question was really, are they going to get what they want? Either a place like Zitouna is better off, or any other cat, uh, Christian college for those for people who are Christian. Or is it any better to do anything different? Look, I don't think there's any question. I mean, in my view, personally, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think there's any question that if you're a, if you're a Muslim and what you're primarily interested in is is learning about Islam and let's say learning about religion in a way that I mean, you want, of course, you should come to a place like Zaytuna. And mm -hmm. if you're a, if you're a Catholic, you should go to a Jesuit college where you have access to Jesuit scholars right. and learn about the. Uh, there's no question about that. Right. I mean, it's not even right. it's it's hardly even debatable, yeah. because if you go to if you go to a, a if you go to a for lack, I don't like the term secular because I think it's misleading. But for lack of a better term, a secular or mm -hmm. non a non um, parochial or, uh, institution, you don't know what you're going to get. I right. mean, you know, you, right. you don't it's a hit know miss what sort of thing. Yeah. You might get some good professors. You might not. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, if you want to study, uh, if you really want to get into left wing thought, 
right? If that's if that's what you're into, if that's your commitment, you're into social activism, you're an SJW or something, whatever it happens to be. I mean, okay, you're not going to go to Notre Dame, right? Or or to <laughs> or to DePaul or something like that. You're going to go to Berkeley, Berkeley you know? <laughs> exactly. That's I mean, because you know that yeah. the, you know that the that the institution and the people who are there have a certain set of commitments to those things that you are also committed to. So, I mean, I mean, this brings us back to the whole b business of objectivity. Everyone is within the domain of pursuing objectively a certain set of commitments that they have determined subjectively. Right. That's the whole point. That's the, yeah. You know, so Berkeley... Yeah, that's a good way to put it, what you just said. Yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. Ber Berkeley is, is almost pr is proverbial that it's a kind of a leftist, you know, mm -hmm. you know the People's Republic of Berkeley. Right. You know, it's a right. kind of, this is where you go if those are the kind of things that you want to pursue. Let's say Brown is another place like that. That's yeah. very left. Right. But there's other places that you, I mean, if you're, you know, you would go to Baylor or, you yeah. know, or, or, or Brigham Young or something. Yeah. Like I mean, and, and you know what you're, you know what the, the motivations and, and is of the people. What I have a problem with is this mantle of impartiality that some places like to don. When in fact none of us are impartial, yeah. we, we're all standing yeah. somewhere on the field, and you so you all have the commitments. You all have your own dogma. I mean, in some fashion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. so, it's a student is. I mean, not just religious students. Any student, anyone who's going to college, ought to sort of think to themselves: Does my mission in life align with the mission of the university? And you know, right. and I think a lot. I, if you're a, if you're a, if you're a pious Muslim, it doesn't mean that you. It doesn't mean that, for example, a liberal arts Muslim, a Muslim liberal arts college is the only way to go. Right. You can you can go to other places. Sure. It's not it's not as though you're being um, unfaithful to your religion or something like that. But yeah, I, there's no question. I mean, it's it, and but then there's other factors to be to be to be uh, considered. Right? What That's do you not, mean? Oh well, I mean, you might. I mean, you might want to also be an engineer. You might also want to go to. You <laughs> know, course, you yeah. may also want to right, right. study a subject that a particular place isn't teaching or, or right. something like. Now that. The question was about religion, really. I mean, I was curious about your thoughts on that. On somebody who wants to pursue that. So I think you know what you said. It makes. A lot if I give a practical piece of advice to people, it would be this: mm -hmm. you just do your homework a little. I mean, it, it's always worthwhile before you go to a place or commit to anything to do a little bit more due diligence than you might think that you have to. Right. I mean, don't don't just hear about a name of a place and then right. say, well, I want right. to go there. But really find out who teaches who there. Teaches, like, what kind yeah. of teaching do they do? Yeah. Like, let me talk to a student. Uh, let me figure out, like, what's going Is that really what I want? You know, is am I really going to get something right. worthwhile? There? And when you're at a place, the same thing when you take class. I'm advising students all the time. Yeah. Half the students come in and they've researched it. They've looked through the catalog. They know what they're doing. They talk to professors. They talk to the department heads. They do these things. Right. Uh, and others just kind of come in. They show up. Yeah, yeah. they just say, yeah. oh, well, I was thinking of taking uh, a, 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 a psychology class. I guess I'll just take this one. And they commit their, you know, they commit their, like, the four years of their life, these precious years. Yeah. Yeah. Based upon uh, very little forethought. Right. So don't be one of those, I would say. Right. Really do your homework and, and kind of uh, try to see what you're going to get. And, and again, uh, above all, really ha have trust in God, really have sincerity, really try and have the right intention in doing these things. I mean, it's very easy to have the wrong intention. You know, these are, you know, it's very important. You can't, it's, it's not a game, right. the study of, of faith. Thank you. On that note, we'll uh, wrap this up. I really, this has been enlightening. Um, thank you, Dr. Jano Dagli. We've been talking with him. Jano Dagli, I should say, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and this is Safir Ahmed at Renovatio. Um, thanks for joining us and return for more podcasts. Mm -hmm.